chapter 4. Starting with verse 7. And Holy Spirit, we do invite you to continue to move in our midst right now, in our hearts. We open our hearts to you, Lord. And Father, by your grace, we will not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. So we say, speak, Lord, and grant us grace, and we will obey. We will do what your word tells us to do simply because we love you. Amen. Verse 7, I'm reading out of the Amplified. It says, but the end and culmination of all things has now come near. Keep sound-minded and self-restrained and alert, therefore, for the practice of prayer. So back in verse 7 again, it says, but the end and culmination of all things has now come near. Now we know this was written about 2,000 years ago. And the Spirit of the Lord was having him write this 2,000 years ago. So how much closer are we to the end? Amen? We are closer. And if you take any glimpse at the news and just look at your surroundings, you'll see that things are, are happening that definitely signify that things are coming to a climax as far as world affairs. And that can be exciting. It should be exciting for those of us who are anticipating Jesus' return. And those of us who have a relationship with him, but it's very scary for those who don't know him. And that's why those of us who do know him need to share the good news to those who don't. And we also need to encourage Christians who do know them, know him. We need to encourage one another. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But he says, but the end and culmination of all things has now come near So keep sound-minded and self-restrained and alert, therefore, for the practice of prayer. So the first thing he's saying, okay, the end is coming, so we need to pray. We need to practice prayer. Prayer needs to become our number one weapon, that we need our first response. Not screaming, not hollering, not crying, not complaining, grumbling, but praying. You know, praying in faith, praying with confidence, knowing that our Father hears us. Amen? And so we need to be praying. And I was very interested and curious. You know, when I was thinking about this, I've been very fascinated with the the book of Peter, the first and second book. And so I was curious as to what is the background, what was the historical context that was surrounding these times? In other words, when Peter wrote this, when he was moved by the Holy Spirit to write this, what was going on in their world at that time? And I found some interesting stuff on the internet, and I just want to read, read something that I found. It says, in the month of July in the year 64 AD, a great fire broke out in the city of Rome, and the entire city was engulfed in flames. Hundreds of public buildings were burned to the ground. Hundreds of acres were blackened in the city, and thousands of homes were destroyed, so that there were thousands of the inhabitants of the city left homeless. History has concluded that the emperor Nero... You guys heard of him before? Wonderful man. Set that fire in order that he might destroy the ramshackle buildings of Rome and give him room to erect some marble palaces and other monuments that he thought would establish his name in history. 
So history says that Nero, Neroy, yeah, it's his nickname. <laughs> we'll just call him Nero for short. Nero set the city on fire because he wanted everything to burn down so he can build his buildings and make a greater name for himself. It was during this time, of course, that the story was born that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. But it has since been conclusively proven that the violin was not invented at that time. What he played is hard to tell, but it is pretty clear from some of the contemporary historians that the emperor was seen looking over the city and enjoying the view while it was burning. There are some who claim that when the fire was put out in one part of the city, suddenly and mysteriously it was lit again. So the historians of that day seem to be almost unanimous in concluding that Nero did burn the city down. The populace was incensed. They were ready to revolt and overthrow him. So Nero quickly looked around for a scapegoat that he could blame for the fire. There was in Rome a group of people who were just in the right situation to lend themselves to take the blame for the fire. They were called Christians. They followed a man named Christ about whom strange things were said. And they themselves did very strange things. Rumors were flying all around Rome that they were cannibals because they talked about getting together in their houses, drinking someone's blood and eating his body. They spoke about the love feasts at which they greeted one another with a holy kiss and shared their innermost problems with one another. Can I skip a little bit of that because we have children of age in here? So they were a people already under deep suspicion. So there were obviously bad rumors about Christians being spread in in Rome at this time. When the emperor needed a scapegoat, therefore he started the rumor around Rome that the Christians had burned down the city. There were a lot of people who refused to believe that, but there were some who did. And in order to enforce it, the emperor began a very serious series of persecutions against the Christians. It was during this time that Christians were dipped in tar and burned as torches to light the gardens of Nero when he threw an outdoor party. They were tied to his chariots and dragged through the streets of Rome until they were dead. They were thrown to the lions. They were tied up in leather bags and thrown into water so that when the leather bags shrank, the Christians were squeezed to death. In a hundred other delicate ways, Nero sought to impress upon them the folly of being Christians. Now, it was during this time of the outbreak of the persecution of Christians in Rome that the Apostle Peter wrote this letter. So this is the backdrop of the letter of First and Second Peter. So when he's saying that the end is at hand to pray, this is what the Christians were experiencing. So as we go through these verses, let's keep the background in mind. And um, I believe there will be some, uh, it'll, it makes a lot of sense when you see what, what they were going through. So first of all, he says to be serious and watchful in your prayers. In other words, you need to develop the habit of praying. We need to be on the alert and prayer needs to be our number one weapon. Prayer. You know, and I appreciate, you know, last week, you know, I said, I wasn't sure if the Lord put it on my heart. I think he might have, but I wasn't going to blame it on him in case it didn't work. But I felt like he impressed upon me that uh, just, to, you know, we started a prayer meeting on Wednesday mornings. And I was so encouraged. We had 12 people show up this last Wednesday morning. And I mean, it was, and they were ready to pray. I mean, people were getting after it. And so I just want to encourage, encourage you, Wednesday mornings from 6.30 to 7.30, that way if, if you have to be at work at 8 or something like that, you have time. 
uh, if you want to come and join us, because we just need to pray. We need to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. We need to hear him. What is he saying? You know, in light of, I've shared this before, but in light of all that's going on, people are asking, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? How do we prepare? You know, there's all kinds of natural disasters that are predicted and, and, and things are lining up and looks like a lot of challenging things are coming our way. So in light of that, what do we do? And there's all kinds of ideas and all kinds of, of practical things you can do. But the main thing, you know, if you need to store food, that's probably a wise thing. You know, just getting things ready on a practical level. But the main thing you need to be doing is praying. Because we want to hear the voice of the Lord and what he's saying. Okay, back in chapter, let me get back to where I was. So it says, but the end of, and culmination of all things has come near. Keep sound-minded and self-restrained and alert, therefore, for the practice of prayer. Okay, so that's the first thing. And it says, but above all things. So prayer is important, but even more important. About to go to a higher level. Above all things, have intense and unfailing love for one another. For love covers a multitude of sins, forgives and discards the offenses of others. So above all, so we need to pray, but even more importantly, we need to walk in intense love with one another. Now, again, remember the backdrop of what's going on. You have people that are, that are being, if they're found out they're Christians, they're being persecuted, they're being killed, they're being thrown to the dog. I mean, all kinds of horrific things are happening. And Peter doesn't say, run to the hills. Leave Rome. Get out of Dodge. And it seems like that would be the, the, the correct response or the, or the normal response is, as you're running, you know, pray, but pray as you're running. Get out of here. He doesn't even go there. He says, be praying. Be on the alert to pray. But even more important, we need to walk in intense love with one another. Now, he's talking to believers So he's saying as Christians, we need to walk in love, intense love with one another. And a few weeks ago, right before we got back from Mexico, I shared four four things that we need to be doing as a church that walks in love with one another. And those things, first one was walking in forgiveness. We need to, we are commanded to, we we don't have the option as followers of Jesus. If you say you're a Christian... Now, if you say you're a follower of Jesus, then you do not have the option to forgive or not forgive. That's not an option. Now, if you're a lip service Christian, of course you have any option you want. But if you say Jesus is my king, my Lord, then he says forgive. And I say, yes, sir. And thank you for the grace that will enable me. And we know forgiveness is not just a light thing. It's not, we're not talking about, oh, I forgive, I forgive. We're talking about serious offenses. We're talking about serious hurting and pain and suffering and, and, and serious ills done towards you. But the one who says to forgive is also the great example of forgiveness. Remember when Jesus was hanging on that cross? Dying one of the most horrific deaths man could at that time. 
I mean, the, the Romans perfected torture. They were experts at torture. So crucifixion was a very gruesome but effective way to torture somebody. And as Jesus was hanging on that cross and he had to pull himself up, push himself on the nail between his, that was in his, his feet and pull up on the nails that were in his hands. You can imagine excruciating pain every time he put all that weight on there. And he would say stuff like, Father, forgive them. Or he would pull himself up and say things like, behold your mother, take care of her. So he was still in the midst of his pain, he was still looking after us, wasn't he? He was still loving the people that put him up on that cross. And that was us. So he's the one that says we need to walk in forgiveness with one another. The second thing was is we need to get things right. When you are going to present your gifts before God and remember that your brother has something against you, you need to leave your gift, go get things right, and then come and present your gift to God. So he's establishing priority there. He's saying God is number one, but God, instead of him, you bringing your gift to him, he wants you to first get things right with your brothers and your sisters. Amen? Again, these are non-optional. They're not easy. And number three, we talked about attaining all the facts before passing judgment. In other words, when someone comes to you with damaging information towards another person, like the example I gave, your child comes with a red mark on her face, you know, a handprint on the side of her face, and she's crying. And you're like, what's wrong with you? And she says that her sister hit her. What is your immediate reaction? How dare, you know, you get up, you go to the room to where the sister is, the perpetrator is, and you begin to deal justice. Because the evidence is clear. I mean, there's a red mark on her face. And she said her sister hit her, so we go and we take care. But sometimes if we will stop and say, did you hit your sister? Yeah, yes, I did. Why did you hit your sister? She came and hit me upside the head with a baseball bat first. In other words, there may be evidence or information that might shed a, a bigger light on the, on the whole situation. Now, in, in, in life, we need to, people will come to us and give us information. Did you hear about so-and-so? Did you hear what they did? Did you hear what this person did to me? And we hear this information that paints a negative light. Now, it may be true. But the Bible is clear. We went through the scriptures, and you can listen to this again on the internet. But the Bible is clear that we need to hear the facts. We need to make sure we hear all the information before we cast judgment. I remember one time I, was, I went with a, a young man to um, court. I can't remember what, what the situation was. But anyway, I was, in him with, I was with him at court here at Payne County. And I'd never been in a courtroom where they had all these court cases going on. And, you know, one after another, after another, after another. And, and this one happened to be, most of the cases were, were uh, marriage, you know, divorce and that kind of thing. And it was very interesting. As I was sitting there listening, and the, the guy would get up and, and share his part, and I'm like, dude, that woman is wrong. She's guilty. Throw her in jail. You know, and I'm sitting there thinking, man, how could she? And then you, you hear the other side. It's like, man, that dude's a jerk. What's his problem? And then you hear, you know, so you hear both, when you hear one side, you're, you lean this way. It's like, yep, that's true. And then you hear the other side. And I remember thinking, wow, 
what's the judge going to do now? Because they both sound right. And then just listening to him, he would, he would hear both sides. He would, you know, gather the evidence, all, how they do all that, and, and pass judgment and, and do his job. But I thought it was interesting how every single time, because there were four or five that I got to hear. I wish he was last so I could hear more, but he wasn't. But every, every situation, everybody was right until the other person brought the rest of the facts. So we have to, it is imperative, important, we have to hear the facts before we pass judgment. Now, remember, these are things that we need to do. If we're going to walk in intense love with one another, we have to be committed to these principles. Forgiveness, getting things worked out, obtaining the facts, and then the fourth one is gossiping. I know we don't do that here, but in other churches I hear that they do. And so if you have a friend that does, you might want to encourage them. But you know, and and we read in in, uh, Proverbs chapter 6, I believe, verse 18, in that passage in there, and it talks about, it says, six things, I'm paraphrasing, six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him, something like that. And then it goes down this list and says, prideful eyes, him who, who kills the innocent, uh, those who, you know, tell lies and that kind of thing. And then it says, the last one is, he who spreads strife among brothers. I thought, are you kidding me? Because I remember one time when I was reading that, and of course, when you read the first six, you can justify, oh yeah, I'm good. See, I'm not on this list. I don't kill people. I don't do all those things. I don't hurt innocent people and that kind of thing. I don't lie all the time, you know, so you can, you can justify yourself. But then when you get to the last one, he who spreads strife among brothers, it's in the same list as the person who kills the innocent. And so we get a picture of God's view of gossiping. And it just hit me right between the eyes. And I came under conviction. It's like, man, how often do I participate? How often do I encourage or engage in activities that that doesn't encourage unity and and forgiveness and everything but but causes strife so peter is saying that we have to walk in intense love with one another amen and the bible says if we love god but hate our brother then we're lying you know, because if we love God, then we're going to love our brother too. The true love of God that's shed abroad in our hearts is going to compel us to move in love towards each other. So we can measure the love that we have for God by our love for one another. Did you catch that? We can measure our love for God by how we love one another. So if I'm not walking in forgiveness, if I'm not trying to get things worked out, if it's all about me, and I'm out looking after me first, then that shows my lack of love towards God. Amen? So, so above all, more important than all, show fervent and deep love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. So if I'm walking in love and someone has offended me or they keep offending me, then walking in love is going to cover that up. Now, there are, there are 
what we call, what do you call it, healthy boundaries and things like that. If you're in an abusive situation, I'm not saying you need to stay in that situation and forgive. I'm not talking about that kind of deal. If you need to remove yourself from harm's way and forgive at a distance, then that's what you need to do. But not stay there and be a punching bag for somebody. All right, number three. So the first thing is be alert for prayer. Number two is walk in intense love with each other. And number three, actually I'm going to turn back to the scripture. Number nine, it says, practice hospitality to one another. Those of the household of faith, be hospitable, be a lover of strangers with brotherly affection for the unknown guests, the foreigners, the poor, and all others who come your way who are of Christ's body. And in each instance, do it ungrudgingly, cordially, and graciously, without complaining, but as representing him. Now, again, remember the backdrop of when this was written. Practicing hospitality to one another. Now, again, he's mainly talking about Christians, not that we turn non-Christians away, but he's talking, the context is brothers and sisters. Now, you have to understand that in a time when Nero did his thing and Christians were being killed and persecuted and all that kind of stuff, that many of them were losing their homes. They were losing their property. Things were being taken away from them. So one minute you can have a house and the next minute you can be homeless. No place to live, nothing to eat. It's like, what do you do? Well, hopefully you have some brothers or sisters in Christ that you can go to and say, hey, man, we just got kicked out of our house. Our house just got burned down. Can you hook up a brother? You know, can you help me out here? Oh, we don't have time right now. We're on our way to our bowling league. Catch me next week at the same time and we might be able to help you out. So he's saying, practice hospitality to one another. And then he's saying, do it ungrudgingly, cordially and graciously without complaining, but as representing him. So we have to practice hospitality with fellow believers. And why is this important? First of all, Christians were under severe persecution and needed help. Now, as we've been talking about, or as I've been mentioning recently, I believe there's going to come a point in time, I don't know how soon, if it's next year or if it's 10 years, 50 years or whatever, but I believe that things are going to change, are going to intensify. I believe persecution is going to hit the United States. And you, you saw how, intri- I was, you know, as I was reading that article about Nero, you saw how easy it was for people to believe a lie and begin to hate people who were innocent. Just because someone said, hey, they did it. You know, right now you're hearing things like if you preach the truth, if you preach against sin, that's called hate speech. Those are hate crimes. And you're, you're speaking hatred, and, and pretty soon it's going to become a law in the United States. I believe it is in other places. It's going to become a law. So it'll be illegal. Every time a preacher gets up, it begins to preach against sin. And even besides the law, when the non-believer hears that you're one of those people that believe that, What's going to happen with the attitude towards believers? Especially when the news and the media and all that kind of stuff begin to build this up and it begins to be puffed up and, and built up, hate crimes and, and all that kind of stuff. You can, I can see how easily the tide can turn against believers. And I believe it's going to happen. 
We don't know what it's going to look like because, you know, every time you think of how it's going to be, it typically doesn't turn out the way you think. But I don't think it's going to be good. I think it's going to be pretty bad. In the last days. And so these Christians were experiencing that kind of thing. And I believe we're going to begin to experience something similar. Could be worse. I'm not sure. Obviously, we don't know. So in the meantime, we need to begin to practice hospitality. Here's, if you want to know how do I prepare in light of the world coming to a close or things ending or things coming to a climax, how do I prepare? Here's how we prepare. We intensify our prayer life. We walk in intense love with one another. And we practice hospitality. And why is it important? Again, persecution may come to, you know, it may get to the point to where we may not be able to meet publicly in this building anymore. And I believe those Christians who are prepared, who are in the habit of meeting in smaller groups, who are in the habit of practicing hospitality, their lifestyle begins to move in that direction, or their lifestyle is that, they're going to have an easier time adjusting to how things are when they change versus those who live their own lives, do their own thing, come to church once a week, and all of a sudden things change dramatically, they're going to have a really hard time adjusting. So I think we need to be practicing so when the game happens, we're ready to play. Amen? So why is this important? Number one, Christians under severe persecution need help. They needed help. We may need help. And so we need to learn to embrace one another. Number two, to impractice the intense, fervent love that we are commanded to have towards one another. When you open your home, open your lives up hospitality-wise, you are opening up a venue, an opportunity to practice loving each other. Because, see, we can sit around on Sunday morning like this and look at each other and say, I love you, I love you. Oh, you love me too. Oh, I feel so good. And that's okay. That's not that there's nothing wrong with that. But to take it to another level, we need to meet in smaller groups. Hospitality. Hospitality. And see, in our culture, in our society, things are changing and have changed to where practicing hospitality isn't part of our culture like it used to be. You know, when you go to other cultures, just about any other culture outside of America, unfortunately, every culture I've been to, they, have, they, they place a premium on hospitality. I mean, it's almost embarrassing. As an American, when you experience the hospitality that they put on you, and then you bring those people over to America, it's embarrassing. I mean, I'm serious. Seriously embarrassing. Because we do not treat them nearly like they treat us when we go over there. And it's part of, and I'm, ta- I'm not talking about just believers. You know, when, when I was in Iraq a while back, and uh, it was awesome. I loved it. And I was with this guy, Siegfried, six foot seven, uh, South African, blonde hair, blue eye, professional soccer player. It's like, soccer, come on, man. Wrong size ball, dude. No, anyway. But I was with him, 
And he was a missionary in that place. And we were going around. And, and of course, everybody knew Siegfried. Everybody loved this guy. And everywhere we went, and, and all these Arabs and non-Christians, and every time we would stop and talk, they always invited us into their home. Now, we couldn't go. You know, we, were, we had things to do. But every single one of us invited us, and they offered us Pepsi. Oh, would you like a Pepsi? There are a few English words. But they were so hospitable, all of them. And these were non-Christians. In Mexico, you go to Mexico. I mean, they put us to shame when it comes to hospitality. You go to Africa. I mean, poor people who don't have much, who don't have hardly anything, but they will give you what they have. Because they are so honored to have you as a guest in their home. Now, when they come here, And so what should happen? Okay, this is the state our society is in. You know, it's like there's a stat. I don't know if it's changed or not. I can't even remember the exact stat. But basically, most, like 90-some percent of Muslims who live in America have never been invited into an American home. And that's a shame. Now, I can understand the world maybe saying, I don't know, dude, you might, be, you might have a trigger under your belt or something. I don't know. You know, living in fear because we stereotype, right? So I can understand that. But as Christians, we have no excuse. And so Muslims who come to this country should be blown away. Like, you know what? Hardly anybody ever invited me into their home, but this Christian guy invited me into his home. I mean, I don't believe in this Jesus, but hmm, I'm kind of curious now. We as the church should be the example. We should be the example. Hospitality needs to become our lifestyle. So number one, helping Christians in persecution. Number two, practicing an opportunity to practice love with one another. Number three, it helps deal with the loneliness in our society. And I was reading some articles on loneliness in America, and it's like becoming epidemic. People being lonely, feeling lonely. Let's see if I have this. Uh... I took some clips from this article. It was called Loneliness and the Fate of America. It said, feeling depressed, a little down, feel like you need a prescription for an antidepressant. You may actually be lonely. No, not lonely, not that. It seems that Americans have difficulty even recognizing loneliness, let alone accepting it as a problem. It's just not in our worldview. We think we're depressed and that consuming a pill will cure us. But in fact, we may just need more time with people. Loneliness is increasing. An AARP uh, study found that of, of people ages 45 and up, 35% are chronically lonely. That's compared with 20% 10 years ago. And surprisingly, it's people in their 40s and 50s who are suffering the most. 43% of adults, 45 through 49, are lonely. 41% of those 50 through 59, 32% of those 60 through 69, and 25% of those 70 and older. Our number of friends has been on the decline. In 2004, a quarter of the population had no one they could confide in or turn to in a crisis. In 1985, it was 10%. But you might think, so what? There are lots of worse problems like war and poverty. 
But could even they be linked to loneliness? Maybe in a society, in a lonely society, we, excuse me, maybe in a lonely society, we lose our ability to care about others, contributing to war and poverty. But loneliness isn't just unpleasant. It's one of the biggest predictors of health, happiness, and longevity. Studies have found that loneliness even increases the chances of things like diabetes, sleep disorders, and Alzheimer's. Lately, there has been a rise in depression and anxiety in young people, and loneliness may be playing a role. Some think it's because kids are focused to pay, forced to pay so much attention to achievement and success instead of social ties. In highly competitive places like Palo Alto, California, teen suicides are up. In like manner, some argue that children's depression is a result of declining free play. Kids don't get to spend their days riding their bikes around town with their friends or playing hide-and-go-seek as many of us did. Part of the cause of our loneliness is that work hours have increased and we are exhausted. Probably why the people in their 40s and 50s are the loneliest with both career and families, they have no time left at all. But ultimately, our loneliness comes from a competitive cutthroat culture. It feels like we just don't care for each other anymore. We must find ways to develop a society that encourages social ties. So anyway... You can look on the internet and find all kinds of stories, all kinds of documents, all kinds of statistics on how big and bad loneliness is becoming in our society. But we have a solution for loneliness. It's called Facebook. (laughs) Or even better than that, we got Twitter. So if I'm feeling depressed and lonely, I'll just get on my Twitter account and just start tweeting away. And and unfortunately, because of our technology and because of the way these things are set up, it's causing more and more loneliness because it's causing more and more isolation. It's causing us to think that we're engaging and building a relationship when in reality we're not. And so we're in a culture and a society that's propagating isolation, individualism, and all that kind of thing. And if we're not careful then we will be swept away and swept into that and fall into suit with that lifestyle. You know, I was kind of thinking this in a funny way, but you know, but then I, the reality of it hit me. I don't know if, I haven't been paying attention, but I don't know if all the electricity has been restored on the East Coast or not. Anybody heard? They still without electricity? There's still some a so there, how many, it has been a month now, close to a month, that there are some people who have been this whole time without electricity. I mean, imagine, now some of us were impacted a couple of, a few years ago when that ice storm came. I know people in Perry in certain areas, two weeks, I think it was, 21 days, something like that, without electricity. And that was rough. I mean, we went two or three days. And that was pretty rough. I mean, when you're used to electricity, comfort America, everything, and all of a sudden you're without it and you can't do anything about it, and it's cold outside, you know, below zero and ice and everything. That's pretty, pretty challenging. So imagine the folks over there who have gone a month or three, three weeks. And imagine if something in our society hits or something changes where they don't know when they're going to turn on the electricity. I mean, see how easy things can change. And if we're used to living a certain way, what I was getting as I was thinking of, the people over there who are without their cell phones, who are without their Facebook accounts, who cannot connect because they don't have any electricity. 
And that may seem kind of funny and, and maybe a simple thing, but if that's the way I'm used to connecting to people and all of a sudden that's cut off, So the bottom line is, and what I believe the Holy Spirit is wanting to challenge us with, is hospitality has to become a way of life. And we will only venture to move in that direction, especially if we are not given the hospitality. If we just don't do it, don't know how, never even thought of it so much. But if I'm not committed to you and I don't love you with the intensity that the Bible is talking about, then I have no reason to change my lifestyle. But if the Bible is challenging me, if the word of God is challenging me to walk in love, intense love towards you, and I'm not given to hospitality, but I'm given to me, myself, and I, all three of us, having a party every day, doing our own thing, and all of a sudden I'm confronted with truth, I'm either going to change I'm going to stay the same. And see, I believe that why do we worship? Why is it so important to come together as a church and just worship God? So that we draw closer to him, we allow him to change us. The fear of God increases in our lives and he changes us. So we act more like he does. Which will be how he acted among people which was love, intense love. Wouldn't you say that? Jesus walked in intense love towards people when he was on this planet. And Christian, that's our name. We're to be like Christ. We're to do what he did. We're to walk the way he walked, which would include intense love towards one another. And so I want to encourage you with with hospitality, practicing hospitality. In a... Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says, Let us consider and give attentive, continuous care to watching over one another, studying how we may stir up, stimulate, and incite to love and helpful deeds and noble activities. Verse 25, Not forsaking or neglecting the assembling together as believers, as is the habit of some people, but admonishing, warning, urging, and encouraging one another and all the more faithfully as you see the day approaching. So basically, in a nutshell, the word is encouraging us that we need to get together so that we can stimulate each other to love and good works, especially as we see the day drawing near. So especially as as things are moving to a close or moving to a climax, things are about to go crazy, we need to be assembling together. Now, a lot of times, most of the time, we, we, we uh, quote this verse in the context of Sunday morning church service. And I believe it's important to meet together. I believe there's wonderful benefits. But again, what happens if we do not have this benefit? What if this is taken away from us? Do we stop existing as Christians? Do we stop? Do we not have the ability anymore to honor these verses? You know, in, in persecuted countries, when, when the laws changed and they were no longer allowed to meet publicly, and then the church went underground, what do they begin to do? They begin to meet secretively. They begin to meet together in homes. And then what happened when the laws changed and they were able to meet publicly again? The church grew exponentially. It grew leaps and bounds. 
think there's something to that. So in closing, what's to keep me from practicing hospitality like the Lord tells me to? First of all, not taking God's word seriously, blowing it off. Or too busy doing my own thing, don't have room in my lifestyle for this. Too busy pursuing the American dream instead of heaven's theme of relationship. Pride and excuses. The reason why I could quote these so quickly is because I saw these in my own life. Too busy doing my own thing. Not taking God's word seriously. You know, in other words, seeing hospitality as an option, but not a real big deal. Too busy pursuing the American dream instead of heaven's theme. And if, you know, you look all about the kingdom of God, it's all about relationship. Would you agree? So if his kingdom's about relationship, then my lifestyle needs to move in that direction. Pride and excuses. I used to not want to have people over my house because it didn't look good. Because things weren't clean or things weren't the way I wanted them to be. They had to be perfect before I was going to have anybody over. That's pride. That's pride. I mean, I was struggling. You know, we had a bunch of folks over our house for Thanksgiving. And I knew there were things that weren't going to be done. You know, recently I, that beautiful um, porch, what's that called? Deck that you guys gave us last year. Well, I finally sealed it, you know, painted that stuff on it that seals it, makes it waterproof and everything. Why didn't, I went on the internet to find the instructions of how to do this because I've never done it before. So I'm going to learn. And there was one, there's one thing on there that I saw the guy doing, but I didn't need to do that because that wasn't necessary. Because I know better. But he was putting plastic, you know, up on places where he didn't want that spray to get on. Why didn't he need that plastic? Because I wasn't going to get spray on stuff. That I didn't want to get it on. What I didn't realize is I'm spraying this stuff. There's a slight breeze, not enough to notice, because it was beautiful outside. Well, the temperature had to be, it was in the 70s. So beautiful, slight breeze. Well, I'm spraying all this stuff, and then I turn around, and the front of my house has the stuff that's supposed to be on the deck on my house. And then I remember I had this vision of plastic that's supposed to be put. Oh, man, I was so frustrated. I tend to do that. I'm trying to do something new, and I make messes. I make big messes. So anyway, if you look at the front of my house, which I'm not encouraging you to, if you come to my house, don't look. Just walk in with your head down like that. But all speckled across the front is all this brown stuff, and my house is not brown. It's like light tan with brown decorative spots. But that, I was like, so, and then I went, went to um, Lowe's and got the uh, mineral spirits that you're supposed to use to remove unwanted paint and everything. Well, when you have paint on top of paint and you try to take the paint on top of the paint off, guess what happens? <laughs> See, I thought the mineral spirits would determine, oh, this paint comes off, the paint under it, leave it alone. It did not do that. So it began to take, anyway... So every time I look at that, it's just frustrating. And I, of course, I wanted to paint my house anyway, but now I have a greater urgency and desire 
But of course, I need to wait till the weather warms back up, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, so I made that huge mess, and I'm thinking, all these people are coming to my house. I don't want anybody to see my house in, the, in that, that fashion. And I was struggling. It was this turmoil. I mean, some of you perfectionists may be able to relate to what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, the guy's crazy. Okay, so I'm talking to you perfectionists, okay? We can, if we're not careful, we will let that drive us and hold off loving on people because things aren't the way they need to be. And you know what? Nobody even said anything about the speckled brown stuff on the front of my house. But people were going on and on and on about Lisa's cooking. And so I could have missed the opportunity, and we had a great time. I had a good time. I eventually forgot about the front of the house. Forgot about it. We had a great time, but I could have missed out on that opportunity if I would have have allowed pride and that situation to keep me from walking the way God wanted me to. And so I want to encourage you. You know, I'm not saying it doesn't matter what your house looks like. Then do the best you can. Do the best you can, but don't let circumstances keep you from taking the opportunity to minister and love on people, which is going to be eternally valuable. Amen? Would you stand with me? And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit is able to minister to you the words that He wants to, what He's trying to speak to your heart. Just let Him speak to your heart right now.